0: Book 9, Part 2 of History of the Kings of Britain by Geoffrey of Monmouth Translated by Aaron Thompson and J. A. Giles This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 11 Arthur subdues Norway, Dacia, Aquitan, and Gaul after this, having invited over to him all persons whatsoever that were famous for valor in foreign nations, he began to augment the number of his domestics, and introduced such politeness into his court as people of the remotest countries thought worthy of their imitation, so that there was not a nobleman who thought himself of any consideration, unless his clothes and arms were made in the same fashion as those of Arthur's knights. At length, the fame of his munificence and valour spreading over the whole world, he became a terror to the kings of other countries, who grievously feared the loss of their dominion if he should make any attempt upon them. Being much perplexed with these anxious cares, they repaired their cities and towers. And built towns in convenient places, the better to fortify themselves against any enterprise of Arthur when occasion should require. Arthur, being informed of what they were doing, was delighted to find how much they stood in awe of him, and formed a design for the conquest of all Europe. Then, having prepared his fleet, he first attempted Norway, that he might procure the crown of it. For Lot, his sister's husband. This Lot was the nephew of Sikelin, king of the Norwegians, who, being then dead, had appointed him his successor in the kingdom. But the Norwegians, disdaining to receive him, had advanced one rickulf to the sovereignty, and having fortified their cities, thought they were able to oppose Arthur. Walgan, the son of Lot was then a youth twelve years old, and was recommended by his uncle to the service of Pope Applicius, from whom he received arms. But to return to the history, as soon as Arthur arrived on the coast of Norway, King Rickulf, attended with the whole power of that kingdom, met him and gave him battle, in which, after a great loss of blood on both sides, the Britons at length had the advantage, and making a vigorous charge, killed Riculf and many others with him. Having thus defeated them, they set the cities on fire, dispersed the country people, and pursued the victory till they had reduced all Norway, as also Dacia, under the dominion of Arthur. After the conquest of these countries, and establishment of Lot upon the throne of Norway, Arthur made a voyage to Gaul, and dividing his army into several bodies, began to lay waste that country on all sides. The province of Gaul was then committed to Flolo, a Roman tribune, who held the government of it under the emperor Leo. Upon intelligence of Arthur's coming, he raised all the forces that were under his command and made war against him, but without success. For Arthur was attended with the youth of all the islands that he had subdued, for which reason he was reported to have such an army as was thought invincible. And even the greater part of the Gallic army, encouraged by his bounty, came over to his service. Therefore, Floro, seeing the disadvantages he lay under, left his camp, and fled with a small number to Paris. There, having recruited his army, he fortified the city and resolved to stand another engagement with Arthur. Him. But while he was thinking of strengthening himself with military forces in the neighbouring countries, Arthur came upon him unawares and besieged him in the city. When a month had passed, Floro with grief, observing his people perish with hunger, sent a message to Arthur that they two alone should decide the contest for the kingdom in a duel. For being a person of great stature, boldness and courage, he gave this challenge in confidence of success. Arthur was extremely pleased at Flollo's proposal, and sent him word back again that he would give him the meeting which he desired. A treaty, therefore, being on both sides agreed to, they met together in the island, without the city, where the people waited to see the event. They were both gracefully armed, and mounted on admirably swift horses, and it was hard to tell which gave greater hopes of victory when they had presented themselves against each other with their lances aloft they put spurs to their horses and began a fierce encounter but arthur who handled his lance more warily struck it into the upper part of flollo's breast and avoiding his enemy's weapon laid him prostrate upon the ground and was just going to dispatch him with his drawn sword but Flollo, starting up on a sudden, met him with his lance couched, wherewith he mortally stabbed the breast of Arthur's horse and caused both him and his rider to fall. The Britons, when they saw their king lying on the ground, fearing he was killed, could hardly be restrained from breach of covenant and falling with one consent upon the Gauls. But just as they were upon rushing into the lists, Arthur hastily got up, and guarding himself with his shield, advanced with speed against Flollo. And now they renewed the assault with such rage, eagerly bent upon one another's destruction. At length, Flollo, watching his advantage, gave Arthur a blow upon the forehead, which might have proved mortal had he not blunted the edge of his weapon against the helmet. When Arthur saw his coat of mail and shield red with blood, he was inflamed with still greater rage, and lifting up his caliburn with his utmost strength, struck it through the helmet into Floro's head and made a terrible gash. With this wound Floro fell down, tearing the ground with his spurs and expired. As soon as this news was spread through the army, the citizens ran together, and opening the gates, surrendered the city to Arthur. After the victory, he divided his army into two parts, one of which he committed to the conduct of Hurl, whom he ordered to march against Guitard, commander of the Pictavians while he, with the other part, should endeavour to reduce the other provinces. Hurl, upon this, entered Aquitaine, possessed himself of the cities of that country, and after distressing Guitard in several battles, forced him to surrender. He also destroyed Gascony with fire and sword, and subdued the princes of it. At the end of nine years, in which time all the parts of Gaul were entirely reduced, Arthur returned back to Paris, where he kept his court, and calling an assembly of the clergy and people, established peace and the just administration of the laws in that kingdom. Then he bestowed Neustria, now called Normandy, upon Bedver, his butler. The province of Andegavia upon Caius his sewer, and several other provinces upon his great men that attended him. Then, having settled the peace of the cities and countries there, he returned back in the beginning of spring to Britain. Chapter 12. Arthur summons a great many kings, princes, Archbishops, etc., to a solemn assembly at the City of Legions. Upon the approach of the Feast of Pentecost, Arthur, the better to demonstrate his joy after such triumphant success, and for the more solemn observation of that festival, and reconciling the minds of the princes that were now subject to him, resolved, during that season, to hold a magnificent court. To place the crown upon his head, and to invite all the kings and dukes under his subjection to the solemnity. And when he had communicated his design to his familiar friends, he pitched upon the city of legions as a proper place for his purpose. For besides its great wealth above the other cities, its situation, which was in Glamorganshire, upon the river Usk, near the Severn Sea, was most pleasant and fit for so great a solemnity, for on one side it was washed by that noble river, so that the kings and princes from the countries beyond the seas might have the convenience of sailing up to it. On the other side, the beauty of the meadows and groves, and magnificence of the royal palaces, with lofty gilded roofs that adorned it, made it even rival the grandeur of Rome. It was also famous for two churches, whereof one was built in honour of the martyr Julius, and adorned with a choir of virgins who had devoted themselves wholly to the service of God. But the other, which was founded in memory of St. Aaron, his companion, and maintained a convent of canons, was the third metropolitan church of Britain. Besides, there was a college of two hundred philosophers who, being learned in astronomy and the other arts, were diligent in observing the courses of the stars, and gave Arthur true predictions of the events that would happen at that time. In this place, therefore, which afforded such delights, were preparations made for the ensuing festival. Ambassadors were then sent into several kingdoms to invite to court the princes both of Gaul and all the adjacent islands. Accordingly, there came Augasar, king of Albania, now Scotland, Urian, king of Murif, Luir, king of the Venedotians now called the North Walesmen, Sater, king of the Domitians, or South Walesmen, Cador, king of Cornwall, also the archbishops of the three metropolitan sees, London, York, and Dubricius of the City of Legions. This prelate, who was private of Britain and legate of the Apostolic See, was so eminent for his piety that he could cure any sick person by his prayers. There came also the consuls of the principal cities, viz. Morvid, consul of Gloucester, Mauron of Worcester, Anneraut of Salisbury, Arthgal of Carguit or Wargwit, Jugin of Legicester. Usalon of Chysester, Kinmare, Duke of Doroburnia, Gallic, of Salisbury, Eugenius of Bath, Jonathal of Dorchester, Boso of Ridock, that is Oxford. Besides the consuls came the following worthies of no less dignity Danout Mac Cheneus map coil. Peridur map erida. Gwyfel map norgait. Regin map clant. Edelin map edelauk. Kinkar map baggan. Kimare. Gubaranian map goit. Clothout. Rupmanaton. Kimberlim. Map Trunout. Cathlaeus Mapcatel, Kinlich, Mapnaton, and many others too tedious to enumerate. From the adjacent islands came Guillemarius, king of Ireland, Malvasius, king of Iceland, Doldavius, king of Gothland, Gunfasius, king of the Orkneys, Lot, king of Norway, Achilleus, king of the Dacians. From the parts beyond the seas, came Haldin, king of Routini, Leodegarius, consul of Bologna, Bedver, the butler, duke of Normandy, borellius king of Cenamania, Caius the sewer, duke of Andegavia, Guitard of Pictavia, also the twelve peers of Gaul, whom Guerinus Carnotensis brought along with him, Earl, Duke of the Armorican Britons, and his nobility, who came with such a trade of mules, horses and rich furniture, as it is difficult to describe. Besides these, there remained no prince of any consideration on this side of Spain, who came not upon this invitation and no wonder when Arthur's munificence which was celebrated over the whole world made him beloved by all the people chapter 13 a description of the royal pomp at the coronation of Arthur when all were assembled together in the city upon the day of the solemnity the archbishops were conducted to the palace in order to place the crown upon the king's head. Therefore, Dubricius, inasmuch as the court was kept in his diocese, made himself ready to celebrate the office, and undertook the ordering of whatever related to it. As soon as the king was invested with his royal habiliments, he was conducted in great pomp. To the metropolitan church, supported on each side by two archbishops, and having four kings, viz. of Albania, Cornwall, Domitia, and Venedocia, whose right it was, bearing four golden swords before him. He was also attended with a concert of all sorts of music, which made most excellent harmony. On another part was the queen dressed out in her richest ornaments, conducted by the archbishops and bishops to the temple of virgins, the four queens also of the kings last mentioned, bearing before her four white doves according to ancient custom. And after her there followed a retinue of women, making all imaginable demonstrations of joy. When the whole procession was ended, so transporting was the melody of the musical instruments and voices, whereof there was a vast variety in both churches, that the knights who attended were in doubt which to prefer, and therefore crowded from the one to the other by turns, and were far from being tired with the solemnity, though the whole day had been spent in it. At last, when divine service was over at both churches, the king and queen, put off their crowns, and putting on their lighter ornaments, went to the banquet, he to one palace with the men, and she to another with the women. For the Britons still observed the ancient custom of Troy, by which the men and the women used to celebrate their festivals apart. When they had all taken their seats, according to precedence, Caius the sewer, in rich robes of ermine, with a thousand young noblemen, all in like manner clothed in ermine, served up the dishes. From another part, Bedford the butler was followed with the same number of attendants, in various habits, who waited with all kinds of cups and drinking vessels. In the Queen's palace were innumerable waiters dressed with a variety of ornaments, all performing their respective offices, which, if I should describe particularly, I should draw out the history to a tedious length. For at that time, Britain had arrived at such a pitch of grandeur, that in abundance of riches, luxury of ornaments, and politeness of inhabitants, it far surpassed all other kingdoms. The knights in it, that were famous for their feats of chivalry, wore their clothes and arms all of the same colour and fashion, and the women also, no less celebrated for their wit, wore all the same kind of apparel, and esteemed none worthy of their love but such as had given a proof of their valour in three several battles. Thus was the valour of the men, an encouragement for the women's chastity, and the love of the women a spur to the soldiers' bravery. Chapter 14. After a variety of sports at the coronation, Arthur amply rewards his servants. As soon as the banquets were over, they went into the fields without the city, to divert themselves. With various sports. The military men composed a kind of diversion in imitation of a fight on horseback, and the ladies, placed on top of the walls as spectators, in a sportive manner, darted their amorous glances at the courtiers, the more to encourage them. Others spent the remainder of the day in other diversions, such as shooting with bows and arrows. Tossing the pike, casting of heavy stones and rocks, playing at dice and the like, and all these inoffensively and without quarrelling. Whoever gained the victory in any of these sports was rewarded with a rich prize by Arthur. In this manner were the first three days spent, and on the fourth, all who, upon account of their titles, Bore any kind of office at this solemnity, were called together to receive honours and preferments in reward of their services, and to fill up the vacancies in the governments of cities and castles, archbishoprics, bishoprics, abbeys, and other posts of honour. Chapter 15 A Letter from Lucius Tiberius General of the Romans, to Arthur being read, they consult about an answer to it. But St. Dubricius, from a pious desire of leading a hermit's life, made a voluntary resignation of his archiepiscopal dignity, and in his room was consecrated David, the king's uncle, whose life was a perfect example of that goodness which, by his doctrine, he taught. In place of St. Samson, Archbishop of Dole, was appointed, with the consent of Hurl, the King of the Armorican Britons, Cellianus, a famous priest of Llandaff, a person highly recommended for his good life and character. The bishopric of Silcester was conferred upon Marganius that of Winchester upon Diwanius, and that of Alclad upon Elidanius. While he was disposing of these preferments among them, it happened that twelve men of an advanced age and venerable aspect, and bearing olive branches in their right hands, for a token that they were come upon an embassy, appeared before the king moving towards him with a slow pace, and speaking with a soft voice, and after their compliments paid, presented him with a letter from Lucius Tiberius, in these words. Lucius, procurator of the commonwealth, to Arthur, king of Britain, according to his desert." The insolence of your tyranny is what fills me with the highest admiration, and the injuries you have done to Rome still increase my wonder. But it is provoking to reflect that you are grown so much above yourself, as wilfully to avoid seeing this. Nor do you consider what it is to have offended by unjust deeds a senate to whom you cannot be ignorant that the whole world owes vassalage. For the tribute of Britain, which the senate had enjoined you to pay, and which used to be paid to the Roman emperors successively from the time of Julius Caesar you have had the presumption to withhold in contempt of their imperial authority you have seized upon the province of the alabroge and all the islands of the ocean whose kings while the roman power have prevailed in these parts pay tribute to our ancestors and because the senate have agreed to demand justice of you for such repeated injuries i command you to appear at rome before the middle of august the next year there to make satisfaction to your masters and undergo such sentence as they shall in justice pass upon you which if you refuse to do I shall come to you, and endeavour to recover with my sword what you, in your madness, have robbed us of." As soon as the letter was read in the presence of the kings and consuls, Arthur withdrew with them into the giant's tower which was at the entrance to the palace. To think what answer was fit be returned to such an insolent message as they were going up the stairs cador duke of cornwall who was a man of merry disposition said to the king in Jocose manner i have been till now under fear lest the easy life which the britons lead by enjoying a long peace might make them cowards and extinguish the fame of their gallantry by which they have raised their name above all other nations. For where the exercise of arms is wanting, and the pleasures of women, dice, and other diversions take place, no doubt what remains of virtue, honour, courage, and thirst of praise, will be tainted with the rust of idleness. For now, almost five years have passed since we have been abandoned to these delights, and have had no exercise of war. Therefore, to deliver us from sloth, God has stirred up the spirit of the Romans to restore our military virtues to their ancient state. In this manner did he entertain them with discourse till they were come to their seats. On which, when they were all placed, Arthur spoke to them after this manner. Chapter 16 Arthur holding a council with the kings, desires every one of them to deliver their opinions. My companions, both in good and bad fortune, whose abilities, both in council and war, I have hitherto experienced, the present exigence of affairs, after the message which we have received, requires your careful deliberation and prudent resolutions for whatever is widely concerted is easily executed therefore we shall be the better able to bear the annoyance which lucius threatens to give us if we unanimously apply ourselves to consider how to overcome it in my opinion we have no great reason to fear him when we reflect upon the unjust pretense on which he demands tribute of us he says he has a right to it because it was paid to julius caesar and his successors who invaded britain with an army at the invitation of the ancient britons when they were quarrelling among themselves and by force reduced the country under their power when weakened by civil dissension and because they gained it in this manner, they had the injustice to take tribute of it. For that can never be possessed justly which is gained by force and violence. So that he has no reasonable grounds to pretend we are of right his tributaries. But since he has the presumption to make an unjust demand of us, we have certainly as good reason to demand of him tribute from Rome. Let the longer sword, therefore, determine the right between us. For if Rome has decreed that tribute ought to be paid to it from Britain, on account of its being formerly under the yoke of Julius Caesar and other Roman emperors, I, for the same reason, now decree that Rome ought to pay tribute to me because my predecessors formerly held the government of it. For Bellinus, that glorious king of the Britons, with the assistance of his brother Prenius, duke of the Allobroges, after they had hanged up twenty noble Romans in the middle of the market-place, took their city and kept possession of it a long time. Likewise, Constantine, the son of Helena, as also Maximian, who were both near of blood to me, and both wore the crown of Britain, gained the imperial throne of Rome. Do not you, therefore, think that we ought to demand tribute of the Romans? As for Gaul and the adjacent islands of the ocean, we have no occasion to return them any answer, since they did not defend them when we attempted to free them from their power. As soon as he had done speaking to this effect, Hurl, king of the Armorican Britons, who had the precedence of the rest, made an answer in these words. Chapter Seventeen. The opinion of Hurl, king of Armorica, concerning a war with the Romans. After the most profound deliberation. That any of us shall be able to make, I think better advice cannot be given than what your majesty, in your great wisdom and policy, now offers. Your speech, which is no less wise than eloquent, has superseded all consultation on our part, and nothing remains for us to do but to admire and gratefully acknowledge your majesty's firmness of mind and depth of policy to which we owe such excellent advice for if upon this motive you are pleased to make an expedition to rome i doubt not but it will be crowned with glorious success since it will be undertaken for the defence of our liberties and to demand justly of our enemies what they have unjustly demanded of us. For that person who would rob another deserves to lose his own by him against whom the attempt is made. And therefore, since the Romans threatened us with this injury, it will undoubtedly turn to their own loss if we can but have an opportunity of engaging with them. This is what the Britons universally desire. This is what we have promised us in the Sibylline prophecies, which expressly declare that the Roman Empire shall be obtained by three persons native of Britain. The oracle is fulfilled in two of them, since it is manifest, as your majesty observed, that those two celebrated princes, Belinus and Constantine, governed the Roman Empire, and now you are the third to whom this supreme dignity is promised. Make haste, therefore, to receive what God makes no delay to give you, to subdue those who are ready to receive your yoke and to advance us all who for your advancement will spare neither limbs nor life and that you may accomplish this i myself will attend you in person with ten thousand men chapter eighteen the opinion of augusel when hurl concluded his speech augusel king of albania declared his good affection to the cause after this manner i am not able to express the joy that has transported me since my lord has declared to us his designs for we seem to have done nothing by all our past wars with so many impotent princes, if the Romans and Germans be suffered to enjoy peace, and we do not severely revenge on them the grievous oppressions which they formerly brought upon this country. But now, since we are at liberty to encounter them, I am overwhelmed with joy and eagerness of desire to see a battle with them, when the blood of those cruel oppressors will be no less acceptable to me. That a spring of water is, to one who is parched with thirst. If I shall but live to see that day, how sweet will be the wounds, which I shall then either receive or give! Nay, how sweet shall be even death itself, when suffered in revenging the injuries done to our ancestors, in defending our liberties, and in promoting the glory of our King! Let us then begin with these poltroons, and spoil them all of their trophies, by making an entire conquest of them, and I for my share will add to the army two thousand horse, besides foot." CHAPTER nineteen. They unanimously agree upon a war with the Romans. To the same effect spoke all the rest. And promised each of them their full quota of forces, so that besides those promised by the Duke of Armorica, the number of men from the island of Britain alone was 60,000, all completely armed. But the kings of the other islands, as they had not been accustomed to any cavalry, promised their quota of infantry, and from the six provincial islands, viz Ireland, Iceland, Gothland, Yorknes norway and dacia were reckoned 120000 from the duchies of gaul that is of the rutini the portunians the astrusians the canomani the Angadavians and the pictavians were 80000 from the 12 consulships of those who came along with corinthius Carnitensis, 1200 altogether they made up a 183,200, besides foot, which did not easily fall under number. Chapter 20 Arthur prepares for a war and refuses to pay tribute to the Romans. King Arthur, seeing all unanimously ready for his service, Ordered them to return back to their countries with speed, and get ready the forces which they had promised, and to hasten to the general rendezvous upon the calends of August, at the mouth of the river Barba, that from thence they might advance with them to the borders of the Allobroge to meet the Romans. Then he sent word to the emperors by their ambassadors that as to paying them tribute, he would in no wise obey their commands, and that the journey he was about to make to Rome was not to stand the award of their sentence, but to demand of them what they had judicially decreed to demand of him. With this answer, the ambassadors departed, and at the same time also departed all the kings and noblemen to perform with all expedition the orders that had been given them. End of Book Nine, Part Two